0: Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips and please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Dr Olivia Harrison. Olivia is a neuroscientist whose research focuses on mental health, especially anxiety, she looks at the relationship between our brain and our body and how awareness of changes in our body, you know, things like a racing heart or sweaty palms or rapid breathing, may impact on our anxiety. Olivia studied originally at the University of Otago before completing her PhD at the University of Oxford in the UK. She's worked as a Research Fellow in Oxford and Zurich before returning home to Aotearoa in 2020 and has been awarded the Rutherford Discovery Research Fellowship. Olivia has also been recently awarded the prestigious L'Oreal UNESCO Fellowship for Women in Science, and I can't wait to hear more today. Kira, Olivia, and thank you very much for joining me. Kira, thanks for having me. Super. Well, the first question I'd love to ask is, you know, I'm wondering when you were a child or as you were growing up, perhaps even into your teenage years, was science or even the broader areas of psychology, were they an interest or, you know, what, what were you thinking about in terms of careers when you were growing up?
1: I loved science
0: as a high school student.
1: I thought it was fabulous. I loved maths and things like that. But I also really loved PE and uh, sport. I did as many sports as I could and spent all my time, um, all my spare time, exercising and doing sport. So I've always been really interested in the application of science to things like sport and exercise. And I always loved to teach and getting involved with my peers and things like that. And I knew from quite an early age that I didn't actually want to be a clinician. You know, they do such an amazing job and I have so much respect for our clinical colleagues, but I knew it wasn't really a good fit for me. I wanted to sort of find out new things and do something a little bit more creative. So I had some really wonderful mentors towards the end of my time at school. I had uh, one of my teachers, Jenny Laney, and one of the professors at Otago, who she introduced me to, Greg Anson, in my last few years at school. And they introduced me to this field of neuroscience, which isn't something you explicitly learn about at school. And then I was just basically off. I loved it.
0: Great. And while I'm a little bit familiar with neuroscience, because I've got a bit of a psychology background myself, maybe do you want to tell a little bit more about what neuroscience is? So neuroscience is the most amazingly broad discipline. It's the
1: study of the brain, and it really encompasses things from cellular studies, so thinking about how those brain cells work and how they communicate with each other, right through to sort of psychology and applications of that. How do those things result in behaviours and what we do? So it's this amazingly broad discipline that you can have so many different research interests in. And I've been really interested in how we control our breathing and how we perceive our body and how that relates to things like sport and exercise and even how it might be altered in things like anxiety.
0: Mm, Really interesting as you say broad discipline one that I think we're learning about more about all the time in terms of our brain function and that brain body interaction. Definitely. And what was it then you said you know that was obviously the sporting interest and and I can imagine the breathing piece came from there and then you said you know perhaps also getting into more recently into the area around mental health, around anxiety. What was it about that that piqued your interest?
1: I think I've always had a really personal interest in anxiety because I've seen it how it affects myself and my friends and so many of my family as well. So even though I started out, like you say, that perception of breathing really came from the sport side. But I was always really interested because when I did sport and when I was really pushing myself, I was always aware of my breathing and it made me a little bit worried. It was a little bit scary sometimes. And so I was always wondering, why is it that it's scary for me? Whereas other people don't seem to notice or mind. And I was like, I'm dying. So it was really that interest as to how do people perceive things differently and why do they perceive things differently? So that sort of then really evolved to greater, broader measures like mental health in general.
0: Mm, fascinating. And I'm interested to know, you know, you did your studies originally at Otago. And then you make that leap to go ahead and study what's well, a Doctor of Philosophy or a PhD over in Oxford. You know, that's quite a commitment. I, I know because my brother's got a PhD. So I know it's, you know, it's a full on commitment to go down that path and then, you know, into to research. What was it that prompted you to make that choice?
1: I wasn't even really thinking of doing a PhD when I was at university. I was just enjoying learning. And then towards my final year, the Dean of the PE school had a chat to me and we thought about what I wanted to do. And then this idea of going overseas and taking the opportunity that academia gives you of being so flexible. I've always wanted to see the world. And to me, Oxford was just this castle in the sky. And I couldn't believe that it was possible that I might be able to go there. So yeah, once we had that idea, then it was just what could I do to to make that happen? And it was so exciting, but pretty scary at the same time.
0: Mm, and I think coming from little old New Zealand, I I'd lived in the UK for 17 years and I remember the first time that I visited Oxford and just, it's been there for so long and there's so much history there that's, you know, centuries of tradition that sits within it. Coming from New Zealand, it just felt so very different. What was your experience of being there?
1: It was different, but it was in some ways alarmingly familiar because So much of the New Zealand culture or so much of the culture that I was exposed to is a little bit British. And my mum spent a lot of time in the UK as well. So we always had so much tea in our house and things like that that are really typically British. And then, like you said, it just absolutely blows your mind as to how much history and culture is there. So it was this incredible experience of both old and new together
0: Yeah, super. And then from there, you went on to pursue your career as a research fellow. What were some of the highlights, but also the challenges of those first few years?
1: I think moving to Switzerland was both, like you say, a highlight and a challenge. You know, moving to a foreign culture with a foreign language and different values and the way that they live their life was amazing and scary and crazy and all of the things, but just an incredible experience. So really being a foreigner in that culture was amazing. Whereas, like I said, there was that familiarity with the UK where you can kind of see where some of our habits and things come from. But going to somewhere like Switzerland was so different. And then, of course, there's the wonderful things like the outdoors and the skiing and the chocolate. It was, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, it is. It's a
0: a super country. And what was the journey then back to Aotearoa, back to the role that you're doing today in the psychology department at the University of Otago?
1: I was given the wonderful opportunity of taking up a Rutherford Discovery Fellowship from the Royal Society to Aparangi in New Zealand. And so that brought me and my husband back to New Zealand. So we moved in the middle of a pandemic, which was a bit of an experience. Uh, it took a little bit of time and we had some holdups with visa issues and things. But yeah, that brought us back to New Zealand and back to Otago.
0: Great. And what is it then about the work that you're doing today that you really love?
1: So I love so many parts of my job. I just think I'm so lucky. And for me, it's really always about the people. So the idea that what we will do will hopefully make a meaningful difference in people's lives and give clinicians and patients and ordinary people the tools to better manage anxiety. And that's really as an adjunct to all of the amazing work our mental health clinicians already do in practice. So if we can help in some way, that's that's really a huge part of it for me. And I really love working in a team and helping to develop the next generation of scientists and trying to sort of provide a culture where we work together and use everyone's strengths rather than that individual genius model that uh, we can often find in academia. So how do we change that trajectory and become our own scientists, but in a team that really works really well together? And so, yeah, more recently, I'm I'm really finding my feet as an advocate for women in science, because scientists just don't have to be that man in the white coat holding a test tube anymore. We can all just bring our own strengths to the job and It's really different and it's changed a lot in the time that even I've been a scientist. So the L'Oreal has provided so many wonderful opportunities for this, including talking to you on this podcast.
0: Yeah, and I think you're so right that I don't know at what age that somehow we think of the image of a scientist being the guy in a white lab coat holding a test tube, just as you described it, that that is a scientist. But of course, science is such an enormous field and within that there's so many variety of roles and actually but it impacts on our everyday lives. And so it's so important to have a balance of genders represented across science so that to make sure that the scientific discoveries, breakthroughs, research are considering things that impact whole you know, that that impact society as a whole.
1: Definitely. That diversity is just so important because even working with students and different collaborators from different fields, everyone brings their own experiences and their own strengths. And we can just learn so much from each other rather than thinking it all has to be done a specific way. It's so much an evolving, evolving process within science. It's really exciting to be part of.
0: Yeah, great. And you talked a bit about women in science and you know I'm interested to know have there been ever any challenges either in your study or in your career that you've faced as a woman I
1: actually think I've been incredibly lucky throughout my career I've had so many opportunities provided and and open for me to take so I think I am one of the lucky ones and in Oxford, I was part of a really young department with really young professors. And it was led by this phenomenal scientist, Irene Tracy, who's a world-class pain researcher. So I've had all these incredible role models and this really modern way of thinking. And I think that's a testament to neuroscience as well, because it's a newer scientific discipline. So it's much more dynamic and it's really forward thinking in the way that it operates. So it's I've been really, really lucky. But I think the biggest thing I'm Probably learnt from my journey is that you need to learn to be an advocate for yourself, no matter who you are. So you have to find that voice and stand up for what you believe in and why it's important, even if it goes against the way that things have always been done. So I think that's a bit of a journey to get to that point and to have the confidence to identify what you think is really important and then go for that.
0: Mm, As you say, it's a journey, it's not easy. What's helped you to be able to do that, to use your voice?
1: I think I've had just absolutely wonderful support throughout this this journey and continue to have it. I have a wonderful supportive family. I have a fantastic husband who's also a neuroscientist. And so it's really about those people around you and those collaborations and those networks that you, you have and your culture and things like that. I think that's a real help in trying to navigate this scientific field.
0: And I think if you think about mental health more generally, that support becomes hugely important for giving you that foundation from which you can grow. It does, definitely. Yeah. And tell me a little bit more about the research that you're working on at the moment.
1: So we look at the interaction between the brain and the body and how specifically the brain perceives signals from our body when maybe we become worried about something. So if you think about the last time you were really worried about something, you might remember not only all those thoughts racing through your head, but also maybe how you felt. And it's possible you had a racing heart, you could feel it beating in your chest and your palms were a little bit sweaty or you were breathing a little bit faster, which might have meant you became a little bit lightheaded. We really try and understand how the brain interprets those signals and how that can be related to people with chronic levels of anxiety, from people who are totally normal and functioning in society with slightly elevated levels of anxiety right through to when you have clinical levels of anxiety and that anxiety becomes a bit more disabling and there are potential signs of an anxiety disorder.
0: Mm, Really interesting. And I think... You just said just then about think about the last time when you experienced that, and because I knew I was speaking to you this afternoon, I was at the dentist earlier on today. think for many people. Yeah, (laughs) anxiety inducing. And because I knew I was speaking to you, I was reflecting and thinking, what's my body doing, and how is that impacting how I feel? And I could feel, all my my shoulders were you know sort of were raised, and my legs were all tense, and I could feel my heart was racing. And it does. There's something in there that then makes you think I'm feeling anxious because my body's telling me I'm anxious, and how you just how your mind and your body work so closely together yes it becomes that cycle and that loop and that's
1: really where we're trying to target how do we break that cycle and how do we give people the tools to help manage those symptoms when they come and that really goes alongside the really important work the clinicians do identifying the cause of that anxiety and treating those thoughts and we sort of sit alongside
0: that to do that brain body interaction as well and I'm just interested, how does the research work that you do then get shared out with clinicians, as you said, so that it can be applied for um, on a day-to-day basis?
1: That's a really important part of what we do and something that I think is only becoming more laterally in this research world because it's no point us writing academic papers that no one will read. That doesn't provide real useful tools. So we try and work really closely with people in the community and we try and gain ideas from them and um, understand what people think is important and then give back our knowledge as well. So the first step, I think, is really using what we find to understand what's going on. And that can have an immediate impact. Because if you know that actually, if you're an anxious person and when you become anxious, it's actually quite likely that you're almost tuning out from your body at the lower level. So you don't identify early on that you're becoming worried about something and then it might take you by surprise. So if we can know these things and we can explain that to people, then they might have a bit more understanding as to why they're behaving the way they're behaving. That can really help in the first instance. And then beyond that, it's how do we use that information to help treatments and help strategies for an individual? How do we understand... A single person and what they need to be able to improve their symptoms and manage and get on with their life.
0: And you talked before about that kind of spectrum of anxiety, through from people who maybe have a bit of anxiety that that pops up or in certain circumstances, through to those people who have, who have more clinical levels, who where it becomes more perhaps really impacts their their lives. You know, I'm interested to to know how where your research sits within that.
1: My research really spans that healthy volunteer or healthy population early levels of anxiety through to when it becomes an anxiety disorder. Because it's really important to remember that being worried about things is totally normal. Uh, it's part of being human. It's what keeps us alive. You know, we if we took away all the anxiety, it would really, we would fall over as a human race. So that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is just understand how we manage it and how we cope with it and how it we stop it becoming disabling and moving into something like an anxiety disorder. So the language we talk about with anxiety can sometimes be quite confusing because it's really normal to be worried and to be anxious about things. Like this current pandemic, it's really scary. So that's really normal. It's just when that anxiety becomes out of proportion to what's happening in your life that maybe we need to think about how do we help manage that so that this person can lead the life they want to rather than having the anxiety dictate what they can and cannot do.
0: I'm really interested at the moment, of course, where we remain in the middle of a global pandemic and we have around the world really increased levels of anxiety. Therefore, I guess your work becomes even more important at the moment.
1: Definitely. I think what's really helpful about the situation is that this pandemic is affecting everyone. And so it gives us a platform and this something to talk about that we can all understand and it's affecting everyone really differently but it's allowing us to talk about this and to break down maybe those stigmas around mental health and make it more of something of an everyday, everyday occurrence and And how do we help our mental health in the same way we help our physical health with these sorts of things so yeah, doing these these things that make us happy and helps towards our mental health, like things like exercise and understanding that it's not just about the physical, it's about having that time for ourselves and processing these emotions and doing what we love to make sure that we keep this happiness and the flip side of all of this in our life as well, even amongst things like a pandemic.
0: And you talked then about happiness. And I know there's been some things written recently about almost those- the increased pressure to be happy and whether that in itself is creating worry because we worry that we're not happy enough. Yeah, I'd be interested in, in some of your take on that.
1: Yeah, definitely. This exacting standards and this idea that we must be happy all the time. And it's really not feasible. It does give added pressure to already hectic lives it's i think more of a kindness to ourselves and an understanding that we have ups and we have downs and writing those is just part of this human experience and so how do we make sure we have time to do the things that make us happy as well as processing all of these things that happen to us in the rest of our lives and i think that's really important making sure that you have time to do what you love and to do what makes you happy
0: Mm, I think it is, and I guess you know I'm someone at certain points in my in my life have experienced certain levels of anxiety, and I know certainly the last couple of years have been tough with me. Certainly, lots of five a.m. wakings, worrying about what's going to happen in the world. Yeah. I know everybody's situation is different and therefore the way that you might suggest to somebody to be able to cope with with anxious thoughts might be different. But have you got any general advice for people who might be experiencing anxiety?
1: I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. And there are so many things that can help. And we know this, the internet is a, has a plethora of things that could help us, but it's about finding what works for you. And so I think really that first step is taking a look and saying, What makes me happy in my current life that I, you know, amongst this busyness that I do make time for, what is it that makes me happy? And how do I value that? And how do I dedicate time to that? So for me, I love exercise. I love going for a walk in the hills and getting fresh air and seeing the sea. You know, it's so amazing to have the sea so close. It's something I grew up with and something that we didn't have in Switzerland and in Oxford. And I love to bake as well. Kiwi baking was such a novelty when I was overseas so it was this way of bringing a little bit of me and being able to share that and interact with people so finding those things and saying no this is really important that I do this even when it's really busy and I feel like I just don't have the time and the motivation how do I actually carve out time for those things.
0: Good advice, and I think that's probably the thing that I found the most tricky is how do you carve out the time? And as you said, almost you, you you give you give yourself that permission, you dedicate some time to actually doing something that brings you a bit of a bit of joy. And I'm with you on the the good Kiwi baking; it's always it brings a smile to my face as well. And I'd be um, interested. You you talked a bit about it wasn't always easy being in in Switzerland and that change of culture. You know, have there been any other sort of tough career moments or challenges that you've faced?
1: I think it's all full of ups and downs. Definitely the language in Switzerland was one of the big things. But what I think I took from that was I learned to be uncomfortable. You are, as a scientist and as an academic, you do more and more of the things that you enjoy and that you're good at. And it's very rare that you feel like a real novice at something and feel really uncomfortable. And that's what German made me feel. But then you also remember that learning something can be really rewarding. Learning something really new. It was like being let in on the secret when you could start to understand people in the train and things. And my research assistants caught me when I started laughing at their jokes in German. They're like, you do understand. (laughs) So... Yeah, that that feeling of being really uncomfortable, and I think it's given me a little bit of insight and um, a viewpoint in which to come back into New Zealand and a New Zealand that has changed so much in the ten years that I've been away. And I'm so excited to learn about all of these new things and to learn so much more about our Maori heritage and what we can, how science and these sorts of cultures can augment each other and talk to each other and we can learn from these different things. And I think being a foreigner somewhere else has helped give me some perspective on that coming home.
0: Mm, I'm sure it has. And you're right, that's been my similar experience. New Zealand from being away and then coming back, New Zealand has changed um, enormously in the last 10, 20 20 years, which which is really interesting to see.
1: We came back in when we first arrived and it was Māori Language Week and everyone was speaking te reo at me and all I had was panicked German in my head. So it was like, okay, nope, we need to replace that now. <laughs> different language.
0: Yeah. and I don't know. there's one of our other podcast guests was Dr. Hinemoa Elder, who's written a beautiful book and I don't know if you've if you've read it. It's called Aroha, which has a number of beautiful Fakatoki. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist, but also talks very much about the, you know, as you did about the outdoors, and how nature can help to manage anxiety. So it's an interesting read if you and maybe even an interesting listen to the podcast if you haven't uh, if you haven't already. I
1: did listen to the podcast. It was wonderful.
0: Oh, good. There we go. And we talked there about some of the tough moments, you know, actually those points in time where you felt quite uncomfortable. As you look back at your career to date, what have been some of your proudest moments? I think Finishing my PhD was definitely one of those,
1: and my husband and I both handed in our PhDs at the same time, and then my family came over for graduation to Oxford, which was just wonderful, and they met his family, and the ceremony was all conducted in Latin, so it was just an excellent portrayal of all of this history and the sort of classic Oxfordism, so that that was really wonderful. I think also probably then it would be the being awarded the Rutherford Discovery Fellowship to move back to New Zealand was a huge honour and then that being added to as well with this recent L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science and I think that really cementing that I want to be an advocate for women in science and I want to help with our new generation of scientists and be the change you want to see in the world so I think that's a really exciting and really proud time in my academic career.
0: Mm, I can imagine. It's a wonderful award. And as you say, be the change that you want to see. And so by being a visible woman in science, actually, you know, that might inspire others. As you said, you've had wonderful role models throughout your journey and supporters and how can you now potentially be that for others as well? And I'm really interested because you're still pretty early on in your career, particularly when it comes to say a more academic career. Where do you see your career heading in the future?
1: I think I really want to... Keep doing what I love is the main thing, and see if I can make a difference in people's lives. And then I think I really want to make sure that we maintain that flexibility so that we can accommodate our family. We have family in the UK and family here. So, how do we make sure that we keep our lives flexible so that family and friends and all of these things that are so important to us can come first? And I think that's one of the beauties of academia. It doesn't have to be a straight line, it can move
0: and change as you need it to. So I'm really excited about that flexibility going forward. And I'm interested to hear you talk about flexibility because it's not necessarily something that the world of academia is known for. You know, certain places in the world, it's all about getting tenure and then you stay and then, you know, that, that, that it's in some ways, sometimes a bit more of a rigid track, depending on which direction you're going in.
1: I think because of the experience that I've had across a few different universities, I've seen that it's not always the way or there's not one way of doing it, there's lots of ways. You know, even across departments in Oxford were different and then moving to a Swiss system and then moving to New Zealand, each university does it differently and different things are valued. So it really is about how do you make it work for you? But getting that permanent academic position does provide that security and is wonderful. But then having one and maybe being able to use that to think about where else might I want to go or things like that and having that as a negotiating start point can be really helpful. But yeah, I think it's it can be more flexible than you think or if you want it to be.
0: Well, it's good to hear. And I think, as you said, you know, there's different international experiences and connections may help to potentially have that flexibility as, as well. And I'd love to ask just one last question, Olivia. You know, what career advice would you have for other women?
1: My wonderful parents and particularly my mother have always said, do what you love and the money will follow. And I think I've always just taken that to heart and that work is so much of your life. So you need to love it and it needs to make you happy. But the catch is that if you do love it, it's really easy for it to take over everything. So setting boundaries is really important. And that's something I'm really trying to focus on at the moment and practice this. How do I set these boundaries to make sure that I have separation between my work life and my academic ideas and things and then in my personal life and having that time and break away from it. So do what you love, but make sure that you have boundaries in that.
0: And that's a it's a great point. And I can imagine particularly in your work where particularly feels important at the moment and you know you're doing valuable work that could benefit huge numbers of people that it could become all consuming. You know, there's always something more to discover. How do you find boundaries? How do you set in place those boundaries between your work and, and your broader life?
1: So this is something I'm really learning at the moment and it's a journey, it's not a destination. So it changes as your situation changes as well. But I think I'm trying to identify the behaviours that I have that maybe stop me doing that. So I definitely have a a flat worry landscape where I think everything is important and must be done right now. So I'm really trying to learn to prioritise and see what are the things that really need doing and what are the things that are going to stop me sleeping and how do I carve off that bit and and focus on that bit and then assign the rest of it to another day. So I work with a virtual calendar which syncs across all my devices and I found that if I write down what I'm worried about and schedule schedule the worry for another day at a specific time, then I can stop thinking about it at that time. But it's really important for me to put it somewhere. Otherwise, I'll keep thinking about it and I'll keep stewing on it. So putting it down and having the ability to just, when I think about it, put it down in my phone calendar. And then I know that when I turn up at work the next day, it will be there and ready in my calendar waiting and I can pick that thought back up. Yeah, ready and waiting
0: for you to worry about it. But <laughs> try not to worry. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, but it was almost about kind of compartmentalising those worries or using tools to help manage them. But I also liked you talking about that I think you described it as a flat plane of worry and I definitely can recognise that. I think when you start worrying about something and there's something else and then actually everything is sort of It becomes worrying. Exactly. And you can convince yourself that actually all of these things need to be attended to right now
1: because they are worrying you. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's about understanding those behaviours and trying to identify what is it that it's worrying you. Is it the time pressure? Is it the content? What is it that's worrying you and how do you break those things down and
0: assign them so that you don't have to continually worry about everything? I like it. You're taking a scientific approach to managing worry, which I like. Olivia, thank you so much. It's been really interesting to speak to you, not only to hear about, you know, you and and that enduring passion for science and discovery, but also to hear about your work and and how that's developed over time and how you're looking to, I guess, contribute to the greater body of, of thought around anxiety which is you know has become such a challenge at at the moment so thank you so much for sharing your career journey thanks for having me i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the female career podcast thank you so much for listening for more inspiring stories of women of aotearoa and their careers subscribe to the female career podcast via apple spotify google or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story you can also take a look at our website thefemalecareer.com where we feature the stories and if you subscribe to our mailing list you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox thanks for your support and i look forward to you joining us again soon